From the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, this is Press Record, the podcast about the joys and challenges of learning history by talking to those who lived it. I'm Carol Prince. I think there's also something there about oral history, that there's something in the telling of your story to someone else that, you know, you start thinking about and making sense of the past and making sense of your place in that past. We didn't know at that time that uh, all that stuff was hazard either because we could uh, uh, chill that stuff off in the, in the sun. We would do it outside in the sun. And if it popped on your skin, if you were sweating, it would burn a hole. It burn a hole in your skin or burn your skin just like somebody might put acid or something on it. There is enough anger, right, and enough energy around the way that this system is I think, to change it in some meaningful way. Hey listeners, welcome back. This is the second episode of Press Record's two-part series on environmental racism and oral history. If you haven't heard part one yet, I would recommend listening to that episode first. But just as a refresher, let's back up and review what we talked about during the last episode. So, overall, in part one, we tried to answer a pretty big question. What is environmental racism? And what does oral history have to do with it? And to answer this question, I consulted two scholars who were generous enough to share their time and expertise with Press Record. My name is Pavitra Vasudevan. My name is Danielle Purifoy. And we will hear more from them in just a minute. They both collect oral histories as part of their research on environmental racism. What is environmental racism? Well, we talked about that in depth too, but in short. The acts, intentional or unintentional that result in disparities in where environmental benefits and environmental burdens are located. Both of them stressed how oral history offered a way to understand the lived experiences and impact of environmental racism on a personal level. Basically, Daniel is talking about two counties in the South. Alamance County, North Carolina, and Lowndes County, Alabama. And Danielle is really interested in how governance can be an instrument of environmental racism. Pavitra has been trying to understand a place called Baden, North Carolina. And the idea is that Baden's really a case study of the kind of patterns that we see um, when racism and anti-black racism in particular becomes really caught up with toxic waste. So today, we're going to continue where we left off and really dive deep into these oral history interviews. And specifically, you'll hear oral history interviews from Pavitra and Danielle's projects interspersed throughout their conversation. Then, Danielle and Pavitra will talk about what they did with these interviews and how they showcased these interviews to the public in incredibly creative ways. And finally, I asked them some broader questions about the impact of their work and its role in imagining better futures. So on that note, I'll turn it over to Pavitra to get us started. Um, and then we actually went to a Concerned Citizens meeting to pitch the idea of doing oral histories. And there's this moment when there's a lot of silence. Um, and it seemed like no one was really interested. And then all of a sudden, it's sort of something burst. And, you know, one person said, you know, we can't remain silent anymore. We have to tell our stories. And then all these stories started coming out. 
And I started seeing that in every interview. Um, you know, it would start with people saying, I don't really have anything to share. For example, my very first interview uh, was with two sisters, and um, one of them is more outspoken. The other one started doing the interview, and she said, you know, I, I really don't have anything to share. You should talk to my sister. And within five minutes, there was sort of this flood of memories that came out, um, and really painful, traumatic um, events that she'd never really shared with anyone, including when she was about eight years old, um, several kids in the town drowning in this pool next to the plant because it had rained and water had collected there. And there hadn't been any effort to kind of close off this ditch and you had kids playing in it. And here she was telling me five minutes into an interview um, and remembering that from when she was eight years old. But it came up and I asked about this company and what it meant to live in this town and how it's, and that story started with saying, you know, it's been a pretty good life here. I asked Danielle and Pavitra to share a particularly memorable moment from their oral histories. Here's what they said. One that continues to stick out for me, um, actually was from Lowndes County. Um, yes, she might be 37 now, but she and her husband, 36, I interviewed them both, um, a man named uh, Keon Dudley and a woman named um, Beatrice Anderson. And they're married, both 36, 37 now, um, and have five children between them. They both grew up in Whitehall. Yeah, and so they, you know, they met, they, they've married and everything, and each of them has lived outside of Whitehall. And one of the things that I was really pressing on was, you know, why, um, why did you return and why was this um, an important space? What do you like about the country? You can feel free. You can sit on your porch. You speak to your neighbors. Sometimes your neighbors don't bother you. And then like that, you play your music, pop your grill. You ain't got to worry about the police coming through saying, Tanya, ready, yo, down. You can't sit here, drink your beer, you know, things like that. It, it, to me, it feels kind of, it's a little private. You know, it's laid back. That's what I like about it. It got a lot of dirt. You like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> no, you take the shoes off in the little sand. Yeah. This was one of the first times that someone had kind of really brought up the police in this context. In the country, right, in Whitehall, she said, literally, like, you can be free. And I was like, huh. And it, and then, you know, and, and, I, and I completely understood, like, what she meant. Um, but she was really so vivid about the freedom that comes in a place where where white folks really are not emboldened to do very much in the space. You know, we have our own government here in our local government. It's a black town, but I don't have police harassing me, right? Um, I may not have like a, um, a steady job in the in the traditional sense. Keon is now, I think, on permanent disability. Um, because of exposures to um, chemicals from a beef processing plant that he was working at. That is very difficult to manage a, a family with, you have one partner that's on disability and five children, right? But um, because my family has always lived here, we own land, and so I'm not paying rent, 
you know, I live on this land. Chewing the milk, get the butter, and make ice cream at this, from, from this milk. We didn't do no cheese. And mom used to make lye soap, do lye cone. We ain't never went to the market too much to buy too much of nothing because we always had land and planted our own food. You name it, we did it. As they say in their market, USDA inspected. I ain't seen no USDA inspector man with inspecting this uh, uh, cow, this hog when daddy would kill him. I wonder where these people were. He just got him off the ground, put him in a different place and fed him, cleaned him out, and killed him. We live off the land. That perspective on what living in those spaces is like and how the absence of... Um, the absence of this sort of like white governmental power, right? In that sense, feels like freedom. And if you can find a way to get by without it, then, you know, to her, you're better off. I think we can't talk about Lyons County's history and not talk about the Jacksons. Spirit everywhere I go, even when I left Lyons County, that was the reverence that people had for the Jacksons. The Jackson family, because they were had the, they were property owners uh, who were not dependent on the local power structure uh, for their livelihood or for them to have a place to stay, were able to, to host the snake home. So that was um, a great example of the middle class helping to lift up the rest of our community, and they were able to take chances and do things that other people couldn't do at that time and provide them with covering until they were able to step out there on their own. And this was something that, again, over and over again, with the people who didn't want to be annexed into Mebane, right? Like this, like, mm, yes, there are these things that we're lacking, but you have to understand that, like, there are all sorts of consequences for us if we decide or if they ever let us, right, annex into the city. Um, but there is a kind of autonomy that exists um, with us having our own spaces and with the, raising the question of who is government for. That's a beautiful story um, that Danielle was just telling. And I did many of these interviews with Naima, so we would kind of do them jointly, which is... All right. Okay, what was it that you wanted to talk with me about? Okay, so my name is Pavitra. That's a real hard name. I know that. Uh-huh. Um, but you can call me... I don't know. What do you call me, Naima? Pavitra. She calls me Pavitra. You live around here? I live in Rocky Mount. You live in Rocky Mount. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Also really interesting um, to do interviews with someone who's a longtime community organizer. Asks very different questions. So Naima's the director of the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network... Mm-hmm. And they work on issues to do with, well, maybe you should explain, because mm-hmm. you can explain better than I can. <laughs> okay. So we work with communities that are living with hazardous waste and environmental issues that affect people's health and well-being and their quality of life. So we work with those communities on ways to fight back and to raise their voices and make their voices heard to try to improve their conditions and their community. Um, one of the moments for me was um, talking to this gentleman who's in his early 70s um, 
he he mentioned um I'll call him Joe. They they used to call him a pot doctor. Um and he was talking about aluminum smelting pots that he had become so such an expert that the plant couldn't run without him. And he tried to retire and uh they brought him back right away because everything sort of just started falling apart. One of the things that race does is changes what we think people are capable of. And in this plant, for example, most of the black folks came in on these extremely demanding manual labor jobs. Um, brutal work, um, stirring aluminum pots, breaking the crust that would build up around them, extremely hot temperatures without protective clothing. The, the film from the black car to, uh, black coat top pitch would be so strong to we couldn't hardly uh, uh, breathe with those on uh, meth. And I noticed that when uh, I would uh, blow my nose or, or I would spit, everything would be black. And still not knowing what, I, what we were working in. Even then, though you were wearing the masks? Even though we were wearing the meth. And uh, then uh, later on we started cleaning what they call pot shells. The pot shell, we take it outside and we would take a, a, a what they call a air hammer and we would have a wide bit on the end of it and we myself and a, another guy would run one part of it and I would someone would hold a blade and the other would match the button and we run up and down the side of that pot shell to get the uh material that we used to uh put the uh pots together off the walls so the walls would be clean when we get ready to do the next part where before they could uh repair the hole in the pot that they had to have this stuff kinda like clean. And uh, we didn't know at that time that uh, all that stuff was hazard either because we could uh, uh, chill that stuff off in the, in the sun. We would do it outside in the sun. And if it popped on your skin, if you were sweating, it would burn a hole It burn a hole in your skin or burn your skin just like somebody might put acid or something on it. So you know, you're talking about pretty extreme conditions. And uh, Joe mentioned he appreciated that the plant was a good place to work once you overcame racism. So Naima asked, you know, what do you mean by overcoming racism? And he said, um, you know, that I was able to advance and do something other than just that physical labor. And in his case, it was the opportunity to do this kind of job that required technical expertise, in particular sort of maintaining these pots, adjusting the temperatures and keeping the pots alive because um, you would you know, basically lose money, the plant lose, lost money whenever the pots would shut down. Apparently, when this plant shut down, it was one of the best functioning plants in the world. You know, the, the, this really powerful moment in the interview was when he started tearing up and crying about the plant shutting down because he had given his entire life to this plant and, um, you know, has had multiple operations from... Um, repetitive stress injuries um, from the physical labor, but also has asbestosis, was part of a settlement, uh, part of a lawsuit, um, has had multiple family members die probably of um, cancer related to exposure, though, you know, that can't be verified. And for him, that he had given everything and yet knowing and realizing that the company did not care about him. 
in a very real way, he was he wasn't replaceable, you know, when he actually had knowledge that couldn't just be replicated. Um, and they made sure of that um, when he, you know, the lawsuit was settled. He was part of the agreement was that he could not go work elsewhere. And he talked about you know receiving calls from other plants and other companies because he had such expert knowledge. You know, there's something about the ways that racism uh, strips people's dignity. And so painful when they realize it, you know, and it was one of those moments when he, he was realizing and acknowledging the ways that it had stripped him, not only of his health, but his family's health, and even more so of his, the ways in which he was able to feel, you know, value or worth in the world. There's the realization that you've been exploited and abused, right, and that that is, um, has everything to do with your race. We know that Joe was never compensated. And the way that you would pay someone who is saving you tons of money, right? And to get to a settlement and then to have the company say, we'll give you this money for making you sick. But this means that you can't ever utilize that expertise again is is not only, right, a stripping of like dignity and it's also this profound stripping of wealth. It really gets to me, right, the indignity of the racism or people thinking that you aren't worth anything, right? But when you literally are central, right, to the functioning of an enterprise that is making you sick, that is doing all of that, has, is abusing you and your community, um, you still don't get the appropriate, right, compensation, right, to, and not that it would ever be enough, but it's like, this is how the system is supposed to work. And when people like talk about, you know, well, capitalism works, I'm like, well, no, it doesn't. It works for white people, right? Explicitly, specifically. It's hard to know these sorts of like the ways in which those things work or how to make it concrete, right? Until you have these kinds of stories where you're like, oh, <laughs> this is what racial capitalism is. There's also these very gendered ways that happens That's that I didn't kind of entirely think about or expect the men who were exposed to this kind of um, particular chemicals in the aluminum smelting area, they'd take their clothes home. And it was often their wives uh, or daughters, young women who were washing those clothes. And uh, Willie Mae talks about this when she was much younger from when she was 15, you know, helping her grandma wash clothes. And they would wash clothes sometimes for some of the other men who worked in the plants for some extra money. From the time I was about 14 or 15, like my father would bring other men clothes with all this ore and stuff on it. And my grandmother would wash it and I helped wash it because they would give her 50 cent or a quarter or something. And so we would wash them. So when my husband bring his clothes home, I had to wash them so that he could have them to be back. They would work in them from three to a week, three days to a week, and they would be full of oil. And so the the company knew that this stuff was thing, but they didn't tell the workers. Yeah, I have washed a much many a clothes full of oil and asbestos. At that time, with a lye soap and rubbing board, and you know it's washing by hand, using her physical labor and, you know, over, 
many, many years being exposed to those chemicals. Um, and later as well with washing machines. And many for many of the men, that was, I think, one of the moments uh, that really uh, broke them in a way, was realizing that they had been bringing these chemicals home to their families. So that, you know, the washing machine where the kids' clothes were washed was also where these toxic chemicals were being washed repeatedly. All of this depended on the labor of the women in that community, many of whom also worked, um, if not in the plant, elsewhere. Um, they were working paid jobs as well and working at home. But they were also taking care of the people who would get sick. And one of those moments for me that that became so real was um, this woman talked about um, she she had to take care of her husband who was dying. This man who was this, like, she talked about him as this tall, sort of, you know, handsome <laughs> uh, man when she was with him and how he was really so reduced by this illness. Um, he actually right, got cancer because of exposure and was one of the lawsuits that was settled and how he, you know, she came to take care of him. They were divorced at the time. She came back to take care of him because what else was she going to do is how she explained it. And he, he'd want to go to McDonald's to get a gravy biscuit and the work it would take her to like basically carry this man down the stairs and he'd get exhausted. They'd stop for a while, take him to the car. He'd get exhausted. They'd stop for a while, take him out to Albemarle, which is the nearest town, stop there. And she was like, you know, by the time we got that gravy biscuit, he just couldn't have it anymore. And this that kind of labor of caring for someone who's dying and of course people die everywhere but you know dying from an illness because of the particular kind of work he had to do and this was someone she had divorced I mean to me that was just and she had just moved back when she told me the story she said I just moved back to this house a year ago and that was that story she told me about that was 11 years ago he died and she left she couldn't come back to that house for 10 years and, you know, just thinking about that kind of work that we don't think about, that that is a burden of environmental racism. So these are incredibly rich projects. Here, Pavitra and Danielle talk a little about how they shared their research with a broader audience, specifically the communities they worked with. Um, I knew that I wanted to find some way to share back um, the stories I was hearing, um, and especially because it seemed like people were resistant to talking um, in public or with each other, um, and yet there were such rich stories that I was hearing and Naima was hearing. So we talked about what, how could we share back some of these stories to allow people to hear for themselves what we were hearing? I do a kind of uh, research methodology called critical performance ethnography. And in the past, I've used that, as I uh, said earlier, to make a film. This time, it seemed like I had a lot of material. Um, I'm part of this collective here called the Hurston Collective for Critical Performance Ethnography. People encouraged me to think about writing a play. Um, I've never written a play before, but I decided to give it a try. So um, I, I, the initial version of the play uh, was a small um, recreation of a community meeting um, followed by uh, monologues, um, one for each interview. 
So we, I staged that play as part of the research process um, in, uh, in Baden for a community audience. Um, there were about 70 people present. I didn't expect what happened, which was this amazing community dialogue. Uh, multiple people stood up who I met at that meeting and said, you know, we're hearing our stories. Um, this is what uh, happened to me. I've never talked to my family about it. Um, this is a gift to be able to hear your own story when you're alive, um, especially given the context where so many people have died, you know, from exposure to uh, toxins here. Um, so now I have worked on the play several more times. Um, it's the place called Race and Waste in an aluminum town. It's not just about aluminum production, but it is about how we understand um, the history of industrialization in the U.S. and what the consequences of that are. So in conditions of fresh water... Um had a couple of components. I'll just say there was this interesting component of the project in which um, the my collaborator, Torquase Dyson, um, had built a mobile solar-powered art studio called Studio South Zero. And Torquase um, is an abstract visual artist. We did most of the interviews in Mebin in the studio. So when we were putting together this project to um, ultimately be in an exhibit at the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, um, and the, the studio was actually parked um, just outside of the um, just outside of the center, so you can see the studio and you can walk through it, um, and then you can go in. and We had two galleries, um, and the one gallery had um, uh, Torquase's work, which is very abstract. Um, you have a gallery guide to see the titles, but the titles are all derived from the interviews, quotes from the interviews, um, describing various spaces. And then we had on a revolving loop um, this mixtape of the oral histories that I had created. And then the second gallery, which was the one that I worked on, uh, I worked with a cartographer named uh, Tim Stallman um, to create two maps, uh, one of um, the city of Mebane and the surrounding communities, and one of Lowndes County. And I basically like, we put them on either opposite sides of a wall, not opposite sides, but sort of beside each other on a wall. And sort of, I like wove them together with, um, colored, uh, thread, um, with a map legend, um, sort of indicating, uh, various important aspects. So identifying where there were sewer lines and where there weren't so people could see those disparities. Um, and then there was a sort of library um, of books from all forms of disciplines, novels, geography texts, all of those sorts of things um, that had some bearing on uh, black geographies, infrastructure, the things that the themes of the project. And we used... Um, quotes, took quotes from, direct quotes from the oral histories that sort of reflected in these books, and we used them as bookmarks. So you could kind of tie the literature to the actual oral histories. Yeah, so that was, I mean, that was essentially the um, uh, very in-depth, right, description of what this exhibit was. Is there a belief that you held before you started your projects that changed? as a result of conducting your oral histories or getting deeper into your research? Though I had already some skepticism about the role of government in protecting right, black and brown communities, but I hadn't ever really thought 
um, about what the absence of government would be like. You know, the assumption is that the absence of some form of governing body, right, would be uh, more detrimental. But I think, you know, the state is not, again, working on behalf of people it was not created to protect. In the face of, right, the abuses of government or the neglect, right, of government, um, these communities have uh, developed institutions. I, I really started to understand, like, the importance of Black churches um, as alternative governance structures, right? Um, there's a reason why you see 50 billion, right, um, churches um, in a space that has, like, maybe 1,000 to 2,000 people, right? Um, especially in an unincorporated space or in a space that has been uh, profoundly neglected by the government structures. It's because those institutions, in addition to providing whatever spiritual guidance is necessary, are also the grocery stores, are also the um, the healthcare, you know, facilities, are also um, taking care of senior citizens. That was something that was really, um, really hit me over the head. Things that when we talk about social movements or why we fight for justice, often, you know, there's this conversation about, you know, self-interest and people really only fight when their own self-interest is at stake. But what I've been seeing in Baden that's been really inspiring, too, is that here we see people who are fighting and it's not so much for their own self-interest in a, a sort of sad way. I mean, um, many of the folks who are involved now, they're older folks. They don't have much more to lose necessarily and yet they're even more so involved and they're really pushing because they want to get the environmental toxicity cleaned up they want to get this they want to see some accountability from this company and it's partly because they care beyond their own self-interest uh, one of the couples I interviewed talked about talked about you know there's uh, toxins in the creeks and that's flowing down to the river and we don't know how far that toxicity goes, so it's also affecting other folks. And they mentioned in particular fishers that they see down at the lake these days are Latino folks who have moved into the area recently, and they're not sure if they have seen or understand the fish advisory signs. They probably don't know the history, and it's a beautiful place, and it looks clean. Um, that really struck me because I think there is something about how we can through our own experiences of suffering, understand how we're interdependent with or connected with um, other people, other beings. And I think that's actually a very important part of environmental justice that we don't often talk about. So I've been thinking about that a lot and thinking about how it's important that our struggles connect, that we understand not only how our histories, they, while they may be different, are interconnected, um, but also even once we may not be directly affected, there's still a good reason if we're able to kind of think more expansively. To close out my conversation with Danielle and Pavitra, I asked them how they feel about hope in the face of some pretty bleak realities surrounding environmental racism. In terms of hopefulness, there's a always potential to get involved and uh, encourage people to kind of move past their own sense of feeling limited 
um, you know, we can always connect with others when we don't feel like we have the skills. Um, hope is a funny word, I think. I, I think in a way, hope, I've, I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, and in part, I think that's because hope requires us to maintain faith in the current system. And so I've been thinking a lot about feeling hopelessness and despair um, and that political action doesn't necessarily end there, that maybe that's where once you fully recognize desperation that we should maybe all be feeling, um, you know, and when you do a work on environmental racism, you, you are feeling that desperation, I think, on multiple levels because you're both recognizing um, generational and historical and ongoing racism and the sort of tipping point of uh, environmental, whether it's toxicity or climate change. So I wouldn't say that we should necessarily overcome despair, but maybe what we need to do is recognize that there's a good reason for it. Uh, for me, you know, in terms of research or something, it means thinking about political action and hope and futures and like what is what does it look like when we don't know what the future is going to be because it cannot be what it is right now. We can't we cannot continue the way we are continuing. One of the only right benefits to being in a time like this is that there is enough anger, right, and enough energy, right, um, at this point, negative energy around the way that this system is, um, I think, to change it in some meaningful way. Now, the question is sort of what direction that goes in. We're in a terrifying moment in that, in that sense. The space that's been opened now, right, is a very different kind of space and I think a far more productive space for conversations amongst people who are like, you know, I really, you know, we fought for civil rights and like, but we don't want this system, right? So um, that's the thing that kind of um, gives me hope. And it's a hope that's on a kind of more micro scale. I think that some of the things that people are doing right now um, around land trusts and really like rethinking and these hopeful and exciting things that um, might, right, like push us along somewhere. Um, I have to engage something that is speculative, right, purely, <laughs> right, in order for me to find my way out of this. That concludes our episode on environmental racism and oral history. Special thanks to Danielle Purifoy, Pavitra Vasudevan, Rachel Seidman, Melinda Maynard-Lowry, and the North Carolina Environmental Justice Network. Press Record is the official podcast of the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This episode was edited and produced by me, Carol Prince. Be sure to check out our website at www.sohb.org backslash podcast to find more information about Danielle and Pavitra's projects. As always, we want to hear from you. Email us with your thoughts at pressrecordsohp at gmail.com. Tweet us at SOHP Oral History. Like and comment on our Facebook page, searchable as Press Record Podcast. Also, make sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes and SoundCloud. This episode is also my last episode with Press Record. 
I've loved creating and producing something new each month and exploring the power of oral history in a new way. Thanks to everyone who listened over this past year. I feel so grateful to have gone on this journey with Press Record, and I'm really excited to see where it goes next. Make sure to keep listening. Thank you.